We are spending a few weeks here discussing the topic of heaven. It's a, what better topic really could we think of? It's where our hope is. It's what we long for. It's what we were really made for in Christ. And so we, we think carefully about this topic because our, so much hope is stored up there and we don't want to misunderstand what heaven is about. Well, we need to understand it rightly. In one sense, the song that was just sung, the giving over of ourselves to the will of God is one way that you could think of heaven. Heaven is the place where the will of God is done completely, exactly, totally. When Christ knelt in the garden, he was asking for God's will to be done. When we are praying according to the Lord's prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are essentially asking for heaven to come to earth. That's the gist of that prayer. It's a big prayer, a huge prayer. If you consider what you are asking for when you ask for God's kingdom to come and for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, you are asking basically for heaven. You couldn't ask for more. You're asking for the biggest thing that you could ask for. And as you do that, it becomes somewhat rote for us as we say the Lord's Prayer. But I would ask you, when you pray for God's will to be done and you ask for his kingdom to come, what assurance do you have that your prayer will be answered? Or do you just throw it out there because it's what you are told to pray? If you think about what you pray, what assurance do you have that God's will is going to be done on earth as it is in heaven? Or is it one of those prayers that God might or might not answer? I think because it's a prayer that Christ himself has instructed us to pray, it is a prayer that God delights to answer. How is he going to answer it? How is he going to have his will be done on earth as it is in heaven? There's a text in our Bible, Revelation chapter 5, that in a sense, answers that question. How is God's will going to be done on earth as it is done in heaven? This is a text that should give you full assurance that when you pray that prayer, there should be no doubt that God is going to answer it. Well, he may not answer it in the sense that tomorrow you're going to see everybody immediately bend their knee and submit to the will of God. But there is a text in our Bible that tells us that that prayer that you pray, God's will be done, is going to happen completely, totally, and you have full assurance of it. It's guaranteed. Revelation chapter 4, we looked at last week. It is a text that centers on the center of heaven, which is the throne of God. And we saw that heaven is essentially knit together with the glory of God. If you don't have God, you don't have heaven. There's a lot of things you can do without, but if you, can't, if you don't have God, you don't have heaven. There is a God who is on the throne, and he receives worship. He receives the worship of heaven. That's what heaven essentially is. But the book of Revelation doesn't really break down into the chapter division that we might see. As we go into chapter 5, it's not a totally new topic. It continues on the theme of what we saw in chapter 4. Chapter 4 is the throne room of God, and chapter 5 continues to show us what happens in the throne room of God. Chapter 4 is completed by chapter 5 of Revelation and prepares for the rest of the book. Revelation 5 adds a key figure 
that was missing in Revelation 4. You might think, with all the glory that is contained in Revelation 4, the throne, the vision of God, His manifest glory displayed as Jasper and Carnelian, the rainbow surrounding His throne, the elders around the throne, the four living creatures right next to the throne, the seven torches of fire that are in front of the throne, the sea of glass, and the worship that's going on, you might think that's complete, that's enough. But there's actually something crucial that was missing in chapter 4 that you don't pick up until you get to chapter 5. The joyful news that comes through the book of Revelation is that God intends for the glory of heaven to come down to earth. And so heaven for us should not be primarily this notion of thinking up there, this kind of ethereal realm that we can't have any kind of concrete understanding of. That's not essentially the heaven we're to contemplate. Essentially the kind of heaven we're to contemplate is that heaven coming down to this earth and renewing and restoring all things. That's the heaven that we're to primarily look forward to. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 3, summarizes the capstone of God's plan for this universe. You can look there, Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. If you're looking for a set of verses that summarizes what all of human history and even all of redemptive history is moving towards, it's that. The dwelling place of God is with man. The new Jerusalem comes down, dwells on earth. So you've got chapter 4, which is the throne room and the majesty of God. You have chapter 21, which is that throne room, that glory of God coming down to earth. And you have to ask the question, how is it going to get from point A to point B? And the way it gets from point A to point B, the key figure that administrates that is found in Revelation chapter 5. And so let's look and read this passage, all of Revelation 5. Those of you who go through it will just... I'm going to camp out on the first few verses. Revelation 5, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals." And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, 
which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Let's pray and ask God to apply this passage to our hearts. Father, this is such a rich passage of Scripture. It's glorious. I pray that you would help us to understand it and to embrace its glorious truths. Oh, by your Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 5 of Revelation shows that God has a plan for earth. And that's really where we start. We see that heaven has a plan for earth. As John, the apostle, who's probably about 90 years old at this point, an elderly man who has seen so much, he's been called up into heaven to see the vision of the throne room of God. He saw the throne of God and all the majesty there, but he gets to continue to look and see what else is there? And he looks, and he sees in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll. The one that all of heaven is worshiping has something just kind of sitting open in the palm of his hand, is the way that the language describes it. And John sees this scroll, and it's written on the inside and on the outside. It's full of writing, and it's sealed up with seven seals. Uh, you can picture this. It would be just a, a large piece of, of probably papyrus would be the typical writing. I'm not sure that they use that in heaven. Heaven can use a totally different writing style. But it would be a piece of paper that's rolled up. And then along the edge of that roll, it's got these stamps on it, these wax seals with an imprint of the royalty that has authorized the writing of the scroll. And as John sees it, it's written on the inside. And on the outside, it's full it has the, uh, the air of a Roman will to it. So it has the execution of a plan in the inside of it. The seals are to keep it closed and also to represent the authority of the one who wrote the scroll. And because it's in the hand of the majesty on high, we can only presume that the one who has put the contents of that scroll is the one who sits on the throne. It's his scroll. It's his seals. It has his authority to it. Anytime a king has something written, it would be considered important 
see a couple of examples of this in the Old Testament. You see King Darius in Daniel chapter 6, 8 through 9, who made that decree that nobody could pray to any God except for him, except to him. And it says in Daniel chapter 6, verse 8, it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians. King Darius signed the document and injunction. It carried an authoritative weight. It was not to be overturned. It bared the emblem of royalty, and so it had the king's authority in it. See, another written document from a king in the book of Esther, when Haman plots against the Jews to destroy them, and he has King Ahasuerus write out authorization to have the Jews destroyed throughout the kingdom. It had the king's name. It was sealed with the king's seal. It carried his authority And the letters were sent throughout his provinces to have his decree executed. This is the kind of thing that is in the hand of the majesty on high. He has a will. He has his testament written. It's something that he wants done in his hand. He has his authority. The scroll contains his plan. In Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, Ezekiel the prophet has a vision of God and he's given a scroll from God. And in that scroll, it says that it had writing on the front and on the back and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. woe. The scroll contained the Lord's judgment for Israel. Ezekiel's scroll did. The scroll here seems to have more than just judgment involved. Because as you go through chapter 6, You see these seals plucked off, and one by one, judgment comes. But remember, the scroll is not just the seals. As the seals are plucked off, judgment comes. But throughout this text in Revelation 5, the emphasis is on who is worthy to open the scroll and to look into it. And as you see the scroll opened, judgment comes. But the whole book of Revelation is going to be the unveiling of what's in this scroll. So it's not just judgment. It contains the redemptive plan of God to bring the new heavens and new earth to existence. And through that comes judgment. But the end is not judgment. The end is the redemption of this earth. Again and again it's said, who is worthy to open the scroll and break the seals? Open the scroll or look into it. Open the scroll and its seven seals, it says. And so the emphasis is not just the plucking off of the seals, but the reading of it. The seals are the judgment. The content is the redemptive glory that's to come. The God on the throne of heaven has a plan to bring his will to be done on this earth. And that scroll contains his will. But you're left with a dilemma because you might understand what's in this scroll, but you wonder, okay, how is it going to be executed? The question is asked by this strong, mighty angel, who is worthy to open the scroll and open its seals? Well, not only does heaven have a plan for earth, but heaven has a plan to install a worthy king on earth. Who is worthy to open the scroll and open its seals. There's a major search that goes on at this point. The search goes throughout heaven, it goes throughout earth, and it happens even under the earth. Who's worthy to do this? 
you ever watched a spy movie or read an, a spy novel, oftentimes the plot is almost identical. There are some sort of secret plans that the good guys are trying to keep away from the bad guys because if it falls into the hands of the bad guys, they're going to get the codes and blow up the world. And so they're trying to keep the plans secret. They're trying to make sure that the plans don't get into the wrong hands. The question is, not in Revelation, will it end up in the wrong hands? The question is, can these plans even end up in any right hands? Is there anybody who can handle these at all? Not trying to keep it from somebody. It's asking the question, is there anybody sufficient, anybody able to take these plans and work them out? And so this strong angel asks the question, who is worthy? He preaches to all the universe, who is worthy? The question is really about sufficiency, who is able. And if you stop the question at who is worthy, and you ask that across the universe, you might have a few hands go up, especially among mankind. We are such an arrogant people. We're so proud. If you ask who is worthy, and you just stop the question there, a number of hands might just go up. They don't care what the end of the sentence is. They say, yeah, I am. I've got it. What do you need? I'll get it done. We're so arrogant. Just think about our normal election cycles. Think about the dozens of candidates who think they are worthy to administrate the government of the most powerful nation on earth. How many people think they're worthy to do that? Dozens, probably hundreds, think that they can do that. There are legions who raise their hands when they think that they are called to be the greatest athlete, the greatest cook, the greatest entrepreneur, the greatest teacher, scientist, or physicist. They submit their names to win prizes for acting and writing, and they submit their names for prizes and Nobel laureates, and it just goes on and on. People think they are worthy. But when the question is asked from heaven, who is worthy to take the plans of God and put them to effect... The universe is found silent. And the pride of man is broken. And all of our artificial importance and inflated self-esteem is brought to nothing. Because it says, No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Consider the magnitude of that statement. The search throughout all the universe, and no one is found worthy. You can even think of the heroes of the Old and New Testament. You can think about King David, Moses, Abraham, Josiah, Hezekiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Think of all of these great names of the Old Testament, these heroes. You've got Paul, you've got Peter, you've got Barnabas. All of these great names. None of them are found worthy. None of them are called to hold the scroll. And this should make us pause for a moment and think, from God's perspective, who is worthy? From God's perspective, what makes somebody worthy for this role? As John gets this news that nobody is found worthy, in verse 4 it says, I began to weep. And he does so loudly. He began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. 
Why is John weeping? John was told by Jesus that he would be shown in chapter 4, verse 1, what must take place after this. John has been told he's going to see the things of the end. He's going to see the, the future of the universe unfold. And he's now finding out that there's nobody worthy to unfold that future. And he begins to weep loudly. John's weeping stems from a man who is in exile for the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. John had given his life to doing the will of God, and he found himself paying a heavy price for it. He was proclaiming Christ, and this man was doing the will of God, and now as he finds out that nobody is worthy to complete the will of God, he's weeping. This is a man whose life is so knit together with the will of God that he has given the ultimate price. He's paid his life for serving Christ. And now he finds out nobody is worthy to unfold the rest of that plan. This is a man whose own brother was killed for the testimony of Christ. This is a man who is so devoted to God's will being done that he begins weeping loudly in heaven when the prospect of God's will not coming to a completion seems to be a reality. He's overcome. I frankly find this quite convicting. John is so overcome with emotion at this point that he weeps loudly. And it makes me think, what kinds of things do we put our hope and our emotional efforts into that if we see they're not going to come to completion, we would weep loudly? And often we would find it is not the will of God. It's our own will. It's when our own will doesn't come to pass that we might find ourselves weeping loudly. But John is not like that. He sees that God's will doesn't look like it's going to come to pass. And he is broken hearted. Oh, that God would give me that kind of desperate attention to God's will. That that would be what I long for. That the tragedy in this world would be God's will not being done. That's what I would consider a tragedy. May God enlarge our hearts so that we would long for the will of God to be done. I suspect that John prayed the Lord's Prayer and that he meant it. He prayed your will be done. And when it seemed like that wasn't going to happen, he's heartbroken over it. Verse 5 The weeping doesn't continue. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The weeping is over because there has been found somebody who is worthy to open the scrolls to execute God's plan and bring it to completion. God's will is not going to be left undone. And this is really your assurance that when you pray for God's will to be done, you're not left hanging. It is going to be answered. It is going to be done. God's will absolutely, 100%, without fail, is going to happen. And here's why. Because somebody was found. The one who was found worthy 
is described as the lion of the tribe of Judah. The reason John is to stop weeping is because he is told to behold this lion. Look. Just look. That's what stops your weeping. Look. What a great testimony of what faith really is. All that faith really is is looking to the lion of the tribe of Judah. When you find doubt creeping in, what do you do? Well, you don't look to yourself. You look to the lion of the tribe of Judah. Behold, look at him. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. This person is described as a lion for obvious reasons because the lion is powerful. The powerful animal. The tribe of Judah was the tribe in Israel from which kings came. The root of David was a prophecy given in Isaiah 11 that basically the stump of David, the stump of Jesse, was going to produce a root or a shoot that was going to produce a lion or a king that would come. This is that king. It was foretold in Genesis 49, verse 1 and 8 through 10, that there was going to be kings that come from the line of Judah and then particularly from the line of David, as we see in Isaiah 11. This is the promised Messiah. He is a lion. He is a king. And he is conquered. And because he is conquered, he can open the scroll. Well, what has he conquered? What needs to be conquered? It's the very things that none of us have been able to conquer. Three things. Sin, death, and Satan. Three things that we cannot conquer, that the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. He conquered sin. He conquered death. And he has conquered Satan. And so he is considered to be a victorious lion. He has won his battle. He has accomplished it. And so now he can go about administering the fulfillment of God's perfect plan. And so heaven's plan is going to be brought to completion by heaven's king, the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's God's plan. So if you are looking for this earth to get any better, and it does not involve the lion of the tribe of Judah, you have put your hope in the wrong place. Because the culmination of God's plan is intrinsically tied to the line of the tribe of Judah. There's no other place because there's no other person that can handle God's plan. This is it. This is the only place that you can look. He is the only one. So heaven reckons this king is the one who is worthy to administer God's plan on this earth. Why is he so worthy? Well, it goes on to show what heaven counts as worthy. And what heaven counts as worthy is the slain lamb. The slain lamb. So John's told to behold this lion of Judah. But then as he looks, verse 6, it says, Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. John's told to look at a lion, and then when he gets a chance to look, he sees a lamb. 
This is so instructive for us about what the lion actually is. The lion is a slain lamb. John is told that the lion is conquered, but when he looks, he sees this lamb, and it's a lamb standing as though slain. We like the idea that our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is a lion. So we picture him in books, in movies. He gets drawn and configured as a lion, roaring and powerful. And he certainly has described that, but that's the only time that he's described as a lion here in the book of Revelation. The rest of the times that he's described, he is a lamb. And it shows something about what God considers worthy. Yes, he's powerful, but what God considers worthy is not what we consider powerful. God considers something else as powerful. As John looks, he sees this lamb. You can Google pictures of this, or drawings, representations of this. And I did that just to see how people kind of pictured this scene in heaven. And there's lots and lots of drawings. And one of those drawings had a, this lamb that had the seven eyes, which is kind of strange, but it got that right. It had seven horns, which is kind of strange, but it had that right. It had its throat slit. It got that right because this is a slaughtered lamb. The language used is of a sacrifice. It had a scroll there between the feet of the lamb. It got that right. But the one thing it had wrong was that this lamb was laying on its side. It's not what the lamb is doing. The lamb's not lying on its side. It's standing. This lamb is living. This lamb is alive. It was standing as though it had been slain because it had been slain, but it has come to life again. This is the picture of the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. The one who bears the marks of the nails in his hands and his feet and his side for all eternity because he was the lamb who was slain, but he is alive, he's standing, and so that's what reckons him worthy. He is the lamb who had been slain, who paid the price of sin, who conquered death, and in his death vanquished Satan in any accusation that Satan can bring against any of Christ's people. And so Christ is authoritative and victorious over sin, death, and Satan all at once because of the cross of Christ. He's described as having seven horns, which represents his perfect authority, his perfect kingship. He has seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. This is the Holy Spirit. He's omnipotent and he's omniscient. Christ has all power and he has all wisdom because he can see everything. And with the lamb thus equipped, he comes before the one seated on the throne and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. This tells us a lot about heaven. Heaven was not looking for earth's greatest warrior, not looking for the greatest armies that earth can produce. It's not looking for the most powerful nation with the biggest tanks and the biggest guns. It's not looking for the nation that has the most atomic and nuclear weapons, not looking for the most creative nation that can bring the most uh, good to the world. For heaven to execute the plan of God, to bring the new heavens and the new earth to come, is looking for somebody who is worthy 
And heaven counts as worthy, not usually what we count as worthy. It counts as worthy the one who went into the garden on the night before his crucifixion and sweat great drops of blood in submission to the will of God, which was for him to be the lamb that would take away the sin of the world. What heaven counts as worthy is the Son of God who left his throne in heaven to take on flesh, to be the lamb that was sacrificed to take away sins. And there's only one who could do that. No one else in heaven or earth could do this. It was just the lamb of God, the son of God. No angel, no demon, no creature could take the scroll. It had to be the root of David, the lion of Judah, and the lion of Judah is the lamb that was slain. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man. This is who is worthy. And this is why all of our hope has to be bound up in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're putting any hope in anything else, it is a failed hope because there is no one else who is worthy to bring about God's plan in this universe. It is this lamb and him alone. All of heaven recognizes this. And so heaven moves into this scene of worship. Verse 8, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll. Then verse 11, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures, and the elders, the voice of many angels. And they are all declaring with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And then verse 13, Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, they declared to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And then you get those four creatures agreeing and declaring amen. If you've had any doubts about the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, this should just put that to an end because there is no idolatry in heaven. Heaven is the last place where idolatry would ever be found. And yet heaven allows the worship of the lamb that was slain. It allows worship in tandem with the worship of the one on the throne. And God is not one who shares his glory with anyone but himself. And so we have to agree that the Lamb is worthy of the glory of God himself because he is the Son of God and God the Son. This slain Lamb is the one who is going to bring about the accomplishment of God's plans on the earth. We'll spend the next few weeks thinking about what that looks like. We've looked at the throne room of heaven to see what's important to God in heaven. And now we get to kind of dive into the excitement How does that relate to us? What are we going to taste of heaven? What is it going to be like for us? But if you don't understand that God is the center of heaven and the way that you will taste of its goodness is through the Lord Jesus Christ, then you will never taste of heaven. But if you know of Christ, you know the worth of the one who sits on the throne, then you've got to just be panting after heaven because it is going to be so good the one that you love, the one that you've put your hope in, the one who has redeemed you and reconciled you to himself is the one who's the center of heaven. 
and you'll join in the chorus praising him. Let's pray. Father, we see such a clear vision that you've given us of heaven, and we thank you for it. I pray that we would take it to heart. We would count the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who is worthy of our praise, and we'd give it to him, and we'd worship, as heaven does even now. We thank you, Father, for your goodness to us through Christ. We do pray that your will would be done We thank you that it will be done through Christ. There is absolute guarantee of that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.